Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast podcast, hosted at podfeed.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Saturday, January 4th, 2020, and this is show number 765. Well, Steve and I are off to CES tomorrow, so that's why I'm giving you the show a day early. I got to tell you, it is so lonely doing this by myself. I decided not to do a live show because I wasn't sure when I was going to do it. And But it's just weird to sit here alone with a microphone. And I know you guys are still out there listening. It's not that big of a change. But I really get used to the live show people, the chatter that's going on. And it's not like they're listening to me or anything. But I don't know. It's just fun to have them there. Well, anyway, this week we've got a bit of fun from George from Tulsa on why you should get an Amazon Fire tablet, and I can't wait to hear what Joe LaGreca thinks about that because he hates them. But anyway, uh, let's see, then I'm going to tell you about the great network migration of 2020. After that, Jill McKinley is back with three products she uses to help her sleep better. It's not about sleep tracking this time, it's about tech to help her actually sleep. Now, every time Kaylee joins the show, I get emails and slacks and Facebooks and tweets saying, more Kaylee. Well, your wishes are granted this week. This week, I got a text from Dr. Gary that said, you are on nearly every podcast in my feed this week. It's like having a house guest who never leaves. Isn't she sweet? Anyway, she wrote this because, as I told you last week, I was on the 2019 DTNS Prediction Results Show, but then this week I was on the DTNS Prediction Show for 2020 as well. Jen Cutter, Shannon Morse, and Scott Johnson were on the show too, along with Sarah and Tom. We had a total blast, as always. Just like last year, I crowdsourced my tech predictions by using the collective brain power of the Nocilla Castaways. Here's what you and I came up with collectively. Number one, I predicted that Amazon will get into wearables with a smartwatch that will have integration with the A-Lady. Now, I speculated on whether they would call it the Fire Watch, but that just sounded like a really bad idea, so I went with Echo Watch. We'll see whether that one comes true. My next prediction was that Apple would come out with a new health feature on the Apple Watch that's not as amazing as like blood sugar, which is what we all want it to be able to do, but maybe more useful than decibel measurement for hearing that they added with the Apple Watch 5. Now, Tom wasn't buying that as specific enough, and I gave him a hard time because I think he was giving me a hard time because the Nocilla Castaways, uh, together with me, we nailed both of our predictions for 2019, and we won slam dunk, so he wanted me to be more specific. So, with the gun held in my head, I went out on a limb, and I said that the Apple Watch would detect uh, epileptic seizures or seizures in general. He loved that one, and the other folks on the show said it was bold and risky, and they liked it too. Then I gave a bonus prediction. I said that there would be a discussion on DTNS at some point in time about why VR isn't really taking off yet, and someone would say, but VR is in the early days. I've been yanking Tom's chain about this for years, and I even sent him a video by Stuart Chaffee on the Computer Chronicles in the late 1980s where they were looking at early VR. I believe that for the rest of all time, someone will be saying VR is in the early days. Anyway, thanks to everyone who contributed, helped me with ideas. I know there's a lot of ideas I didn't use. I was only allowed to use two and I used three. So uh, anyway, I appreciate all you guys helping me and we'll see whether we win again. But those two shows alone were not enough to prompt Dr. Gary's lovely and you know kind note to me. The third show I was on was Clockwise, and this was kind of an interesting appearance because I wasn't supposed to be on Clockwise at all. 
I was minding my own business on Tuesday night when the shared Google Sheet that Dan Morin and Micah Sargent use for Clockwise sent me an email notification. I've never seen one of these before. I don't know why I got one then, and I don't know how I set that Google Sheet to send me notifications. Maybe all of them would, but it was really lucky that I did. You see, the notification was triggered when the guests they were supposed to have on the show the next morning wrote a comment. Not, 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 didn't send them a text message, didn't email them, didn't, you know, use any normal method of communication. They wrote a comment on one of the lines in the spreadsheet saying, hey, I'm not going to be able to make it tomorrow. That was kind of pretty poor form for them to tell them this way, that, that way. And it was really late notice. It was like nine o'clock Pacific time. And the show is at 9 a.m. the next morning. But it was really lucky I happened to get the message. I sent Dan Morin a note, who by this time was sound asleep on the East Coast. I told him what happened, and I said, hey, you want me to step in? Well, Dan was sure happy when he woke up and uh, knew that I noticed it and was happy that I could change my day around to make it. When I got on with them, I started singing, here she comes to save the day. I think I was more pleased with myself than they were. But anyway, Dan was really, really happy. The show was great fun. Micah wasn't actually there, so uh, Jason Snell had stepped in to take his co-chair spot back since he was the original host. The other guest was Alex Cox, who I, whom I'd never met before, but they were cool too. We talked about tech stocking stuffers, why the Mac community exists, that was my topic, uh, Apple's rumored interest in making satellites, and whether the rumored portless iPhone could be modular. Check out Clockwise number 326 at Relay.fm if you want to listen. And of course, there's a link in the show notes. This week's Chit Chat Across the Pond was an absolute blast. When Steve and I went on the SpaceX tour I told you about a little while ago, we were actually there for a Women Who Code event. We met a woman named Eleanor Mazzarella, who has a fascinating story to tell. She was a classically trained professional musician who overnight kind of decided she wanted to become a programmer. I simply had to have her on Chit Chat Across the Pond. She is delightfully nerdy and yet comes with a full-fledged artistic bent as well. She's a great storyteller, so she literally starts at the very beginning when she saw a clarinet sitting on her father's bookshelf. And uh, it, the, the whole conversation made me smile from beginning to end. You can find the interview with Eleanor as Chit Chat Across the Pond Light number 620 in your podcatcher of choice. And of course, over at podfeed.com, and there's a link in the show notes, or you can just go to the website. You, you guys know the drill. Next week, Bart will be back with us, but we're taking a break from programming by stealth as he brings us an update on all of the fun health gadgets he's been using. Hi. George from Tulsa here with 10 reasons to use the Amazon gift card Santa's going to drop in your stocking to buy an Amazon Fire tablet. But however you spend that card, do remember to first log into Amazon through Allison's affiliate link and support all that great content the Sheridans and Bart create. Number one, you're addicted to listening to audiobooks, music, and podcasts and would rather wear out the battery of a cheap Fire tablet than your expensive smartphone. Number two, you're guilty about ignoring your bucket list of real literature and intrigued by the demo of Fire's easy, high-quality text-to-speech linked in the show notes. Number three, you're cheap 
and want to take advantage of the nearly unlimited variety of free digital content public libraries make available through services like Overdrive, Hoopla, and RB Digital. Number four, you miss the headphone jack and prefer comfortable wired headsets that don't fall out of your ears, don't have batteries to wear down, and deliver better audio quality than the best Bluetooth. Plus, your old car has only an aux jack. Number five, you subscribe to Amazon Prime and can use the Fire to access Prime videos, music, ebooks, and photo storage. Number six, you use Amazon's Matahari Digital Assistant and think she will be more useful if available on a portable, battery-powered touchscreen. Number seven, you have hundreds of gigabytes of personal content, music, video, books, photos, you can carry and play anywhere, since the Fire accepts micro SD cards up to 512 gigabytes. Number eight, you like the idea of privacy-protecting open-source software and want to install the F-Droid store and add open-source apps like Firefox, to a gadget not locked down by Apple or phoning home to Google. Number nine, you love Google's apps and want to hack the Play Store onto an inexpensive tablet. Number 10, forget all that, you just want to play Angry Birds. I bought my 2017 16 gigabyte Fire 7 two and a half years ago. I use it most every day, often hours at a time. Battery life remains excellent. The cell phone battery I worried I was wearing out listening to audiobooks and podcasts gave up the ghost long ago. The Fire 7's not much larger than phablet phones and fits caseless into some of my pockets. It slipped out of one and just kept playing as it bounced down the driveway. No apparent damage. I left it behind on a road trip, and the hotel paid UPS about the same to ship it back as a new one costs direct from Amazon with free prime delivery. After the driveway episode, I keep it in one of those kid-proof cases Amazon offers and holster it in a carpenter's pouch so I can listen while cleaning the house, working in the yard, and walking the dog. At $50 list, and often on sale for less, buyers need to have reasonable expectations. The Fire 7's 1GB of OS RAM is marginal. That's probably why I sometimes have to reboot it when audiobook playback jams. Response to touch input can lag. Again, the fire's probably having to move some things out of RAM to move others in. What's been very good? Wi-Fi range and speed, Bluetooth pairing and range, battery life, audio quality, general durability, display quality of the OS interface, Kindle eBooks, and the apps I've tried. Less than excellent. The built-in speaker is weak, but at least distortion-free. The screen's fine at maximum brightness. Turning brightness down reveals pixels and a less-than-ideal color gamut. 
It's possible the tablet's screen suffers when playing Amazon video because of quality settings upstream. I played some Vimeo content in Firefox that looked better. If you buy a Fire, you'll want more than 16 gigabytes of storage. The upgrade to internal 32 gigabyte adds $20, while $10 will add 64 gigabytes of micro SD. Then, the internal upgrade should provide faster access than the micro SD card. Consider the KidProof line, which comes with very protective, bulky phone cases, two-year breakage replacement, and a lot of kid-oriented content. Fires are sold with 7, 8, and 10-inch screens. The larger ones have better specs, but I suspect most of what's better is required to drive their larger and somewhat higher resolution screens. The latest 10-inch model does have a USB-C power port, likely to be trouble-free for longer than the 7 and 8's micro USB. I provided some Fire Tablet-related links Allison's putting in the blog post about this review you'll find at podfeet.com. I don't think anyone does reviews quite like George, and that's why I love his post so much. I love whenever he comes on the show. It always makes me laugh and makes me think. He makes me think differently about things, and I think that's, uh, that's probably one of the best things you can do. Four years ago, I told you about my wicked cool new router, the Netgear Nighthawk X8AC5300 tri-band router. I bought it about three minutes before the whole mesh router craze hit the market. A while later, I tested it against Netgear's Orbi mesh router, and it turned out the normal router actually outperformed the two-unit Orbi for the shape of my house. In early 2019, I had Dave Hamilton of the Mac Observer on Chit Chat Across the Pond to talk about mesh routers, and I learned from him that I could add an extender to my network and actually get some meshiness. I bought a Netgear extender, and it really helped increase coverage for some of my, my more challenging devices, like my outdoor ring cameras and floodlights. But sadly, a few months ago, we started running into network problems at Casa Sheridan. At first, it would be like weird Wi-Fi dropouts. Then sometimes the Wi-Fi would fail first, and a few minutes later, we would lose our wired network connectivity as well. I'd reboot the router and things would be better for a while, but then it would happen again. When I attended MacTech, I asked Dave and a bunch of other networking types about the problems I was having, asking, how do I test for a root cause of something like this? No one had a good answer for me. Part of the problem was it was so intermittent, happening maybe once or twice a month at most, experiments were really difficult to conduct because you couldn't really tell had you fixed it or not. In late November, it failed again. And I decided, you know what? It's just time to move on. Black Friday arrived and I found a deal for $50 off a set of three Eero Pros through Best Buy. The deal is gone now, but since I know you guys would ask for it, I put a link to the same system on Amazon. Now, note that you don't have to get three Pros. They have lower price sets with, say, one Pro and two Beacons and some other combinations, but I was too lazy and time-constrained to figure out which one I needed, so I went for the top of the line and bought the one with three Eero Pros. Now, you might ask why I chose Eero, and it's because Dave recommends them very highly, and he's extensively tested pretty much every mesh router system out there. Now, I know Eero has been a sponsor of his on the Mac Geek Gab, but I also know him to be a man of incredible integrity, and I trust that he would not continue to recommend them so highly if he didn't believe in the product. 
I know this sounds funny, but I kind of trust him to be faithful to that that thing more than even me. And I trust me a lot. Anyway, the other factor is that my good friend and Apple certified consultant, Pat Dengler, has been singing the virtues of Eero for a long time. And I figured, you know what? It's time to join the cool kids. While I was waiting for my new toys to arrive, I did what I should have done a long time ago. I did some Googling on how to fix this kind of problem. One forum suggested resetting the Netgear router to factory settings. That sounded fun. So I used the web, web interface to export all of my settings so I wouldn't lose things like my static IP reservations for my Drobos and Plex servers. And uh, I don't know, I had a bunch of nicknames set up for devices. So I did the factory reset and I re-imported my settings. Wouldn't you know it, the darn router started working flawlessly. Shiny new Eros arrived, and I could not justify opening the box. It was killing me. I'd sit there working along with lovely internet with the Eero box mocking me in the corner, begging me to open it. That just didn't make sense. Plus, I was kind of busy with the holidays and all, but still, I was really bummed that my Netgear was working so well. But this week, I got a late Christmas present. My Netgear router failed again. I was so happy. Yay, I get to open the box. Once I knew I was really going to convert to a new router, I realized I needed some careful Dorothy-level plan of attack. Like any good no-silla castaway, I have a stupid number of devices on my network. Of course, we have iPhones and iPads and Macs and Apple TVs like anybody else. But I also have backup iPhones, iPads, and Macs. I have devices I use just for screencasts online, and I keep at least one device back of every variety in case of hardware failure, so I'm never left without. Like any good no castaway, I have also embraced the Internet of Things to automate my life. I pretty much blame Denise and Joe for getting me to dive in so deeply. I don't think you realize how many devices you really have until you start diagramming them out in preparation for a network move like this. Now, I've been keeping two networks going for a long time. I have my main, good, trusted network, which houses my Apple devices and anything HomeKit compatible. I also keep a guest network for non-HomeKit devices, or let's say a stray Android or Windows device comes into my house looking for Wi-Fi. The cool thing about guest networks is that anything on that network is isolated, not only from the good network, but isolated from anything else on the guest network. So let's say Wise gets hacked. I mean, really hacked, not like database without passwords hacked, but like hacked hacked. Then the wise devices that are on the guest network can't crawl over and mess around with, say, my Ring floodlight camera. I started a mind map a while back to document my network. And before embarking on moving everything over to the Eros from the Netgear, I brought it up to date as well as I could from memory. And as we started moving devices, I added anything I'd forgotten to the diagram. I put a picture of it in the show notes and I I made it deliberately small so you can't read it. It's not meant to be readable. It's just meant to make you go, oh my gosh, that's bananas. What's wrong with that woman? I discovered from this diagram that I now have 55 IoT devices on my network. I know that's bananas. The plethora of of vendors is truly astounding too. I've got Hue, iDevices, Ecobee, August, Wemo, LifeX, Rachio, MyQ, Ring, HP, Nest, uh, Nest, Wise, Amazon, and MeteoBridge. And keep in mind, those 55 devices, I'm not even counting any of my Apple devices when I get to that number. And every single one of them has to move. Now, perhaps you're saying to yourself, but Allison, if you just keep the same SSID of your network, the devices will magically float over to the new router. 
Well, that could have been true, except for a couple of problems. First of all, on the Netgear, to make some of the IoT devices connect properly, like the Wemo switches, I had to separate my 5 gigahertz and 2.4 gigahertz networks into separate names or separate SSIDs. Mesh routers don't allow you to do that. You can't separate them into two separate SSIDs by the frequency. So by definition, I had to change the name. I also had some devices set up with static IPs, as I mentioned earlier, and those IP ranges wouldn't work on the new router. You see, Netgear uses the 10.0.0.x IP range, while Eero uses 192.164.x. So, if any devices couldn't make the jump automatically, I'd be in a world of hurt trying to move them if the original network was no longer there. All right, so now we've sized the problem, it's time for a plan of attack. Here are the options I considered. Option one was to simply remove the Netgear, put the Eero in place, and move all of the devices over on the same day. That was a very bad idea. With so many devices to move, and with virtually every IoT device being its own little nightmare to mess around with, there was no way I could accomplish this in a single day or even in several days. Now, I'm lucky. Most people don't have a partner in this kind of activity. They have a whole family that's just mad at them the whole time nothing's working. In my case, I do have a partner. Steve doesn't love the idea of messing around with the network, but given sufficient motivation, he's all in and willing to do as much of it as he can. The only good news of this possible plan, which is bad plan, is that our TiVos, which control our ability to watch cable TV, are all on a separate network that's called MOCA, or Multimedia Over Coaxial Cable. In other words, they're on this isolated network and don't depend on the router in any way. So as long as it would take to change all of the devices, at least we'd still be able to watch TV. In any case, swapping routers in one fell swoop was not happening. Option two, I could potentially connect the Eero into one of the local area network or LAN ports on the Netgear. So it would be in series. So you'd have my modem, then the Netgear, and then the Eero after that. This would let me move devices one by one over to the Eero, and then I figured maybe when I was done, I would be able to just swap the routers. But this would undoubtedly involve like bridge mode on one of the routers, and I wasn't sure what would happen to the whole IP range thing. Would that really work? It might, but I wasn't sure. I could connect the Eero directly to the modem and then plug the Netgear into the Eero and move them one by one. But that had all of the disadvantages of the previous idea and would probably break absolutely everything. I was noodling this with Dorothy at the gym and she said, well, couldn't you connect both of them directly to your modem? So in parallel and seven series, I explained Dorothy to Dorothy, I couldn't do that because I only had one ethernet port on my modem. Duh, that's why I was plotting out these elaborate strategies. Then I got home and I thought, maybe I should double check that. Well, I'm an idiot. I totally forgot that my Fios modem is also a full-fledged router with four LAN ports on it. Do you realize how much it paid me to tell Dorothy she was right? Enter option three. Connect both routers in parallel to the Frontier Fios modem router. Yeah, that was the winner. All right, so I connected the one of the Eros. Remember, there's three of them. One of the Euro Pros into the modem and I got to work. The Euro Pros are incredibly easy to set up. You can only use the app on your phone as there's no web interface. And this worried me at first, but it turns out the app is really lovely. After plugging one Eero Pro into my modem, I opened the app and it walked me through things like asking the shape of my house, square versus long, and how many floors it has. Remember whether it was square or long mattered when I talked about it a while ago? 
Well, as I plug the other two arrows into power in the locations I thought would be good, the Euro system ran a scan to verify that I had placed them in an area that would be you know, useful, that would work well. Luckily, the app told me that I had placed them like a champion. That made me smile. It turns out if you get uh, mesh routers too close together, Dave explained that that actually causes huge problems. So you have to get them separated. And apparently I did a good job. Now, we wanted to put one of the Eros on top of the china cabinet in the dining room. But there was one little problem. The outlet is nearly in the middle of the cabinet, and the cabinet weighs, I think, 2,387 pounds at last check, and it's filled with breakable stuff, and it's bolted to the wall for earthquake protection. But you know what? We're engineers, and we know how to use tools. We needed something long that we could somehow attach the plug to and then try to like rotate it to push the plug 90 degrees into the wall where we could barely see the outlet. I went hunting in the garage and I found the perfect device. We have a rolling awning outside and it has this long detachable metal handle. On the end of it is a small hook to attach to the eye in the awning mechanism, which allows it to kind of swivel around as you rotate this thing to pull in the awning. Turns out that the plug for the Eero fit pretty snugly into that little hook. Steve then puts a blue painter's tape very loosely holding it in place and in such a way that if he did succeed in, you know, pivoting this, this uh, pole and pushing it 90 degrees into the outlet, he could then push straight away from himself to break loose the tape and leave the plug connected. Get this, it worked on the very first try. The tape did stick to the plug, but he went back in with the pole and he kind of waggled it around and the tape transferred to the hook and boom, we were done. You cannot imagine how proud we were of our little selves for using tools. All right, enough of the hardware. Let's talk about adding devices to the network. In the list of things I already love about the Euro system is the fact that you get a notification when a new device joins your network. That could be handy if you saw some device jump on that you weren't expecting. You can kill it if you don't want it on your network. With Steve and me adding around 75 devices to the network, it was really fun to see them jumping on one by one. In fact, I had called dibs on doing the wise cams because they're super easy and fun, and I saw Steve go boom, 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 adding them. I'm still mad at him for taking that fun away from me. Anyway, when a new device comes onto the network, if the vendor has intelligently provided the device information to the Wi-Fi card, the name will show up correctly in the Eero app. For example, the Wise Cams all came in saying Wise Labs Inc., so I knew they were from Wise. But if the vendor is dopey, the device name will be the manufacturer of the network card. Now, I have a love-hate relationship with Ring. I keep giving them money, but they still bug me sometimes, and they fail me again, as every one of the Ring devices came in calling itself Texas Instruments. Isn't that helpful? Now, with how slick Eero's app is, I was hoping they'd have a nickname field like the web interface did on my Netgear router. Unfortunately, I was unable to find the ability to name my devices inside the Eero app. Now, they do have a feature called Profiles. This option is designed to put a group of devices into a profile so you can then limit access. For example, if uh, let's say you put your kids into a profile together and then you can shut off network access after 8 p.m. I figured out I could create a profile called Ring and then just move all of the Texas Instrument devices in there and at least I've had, I'd have them grouped together. Steve ran around the house adding the Ring doorbell, Ring floodlight cam, Ring spotlight cam, and three Ring chimes all one by one to our network. He also ran around, like I said, doing our wise cams, and I think there's five of them, maybe six. They seem to multiply like rabbits when I'm not looking. Plus, we have three ring, uh, wise light bulbs and a switch. After he got all that done, 
I kept thinking that nickname thing really, really would be handy. So I did an online search. And guess what? There is a way to add a nickname, but it is totally non-obvious. This is a terrible UI. The instructions I found say, select a nickname and type the name you want. But there is no nickname field. There's no way to get to that. Turns out what they mean is that you tap on the name Eroa sign, like in the case of Ring where it says Texas Instruments, you tap on that and it's actually editable. But it's not graphically obvious that you can do that. They should have made it more obvious, I think. If I'd figured this out the first time I went looking, I could have renamed the devices as they came on the network because at that instant in time, I would know that Steve did the backyard floodlight cam and I could call it that when it came in. But now, I don't know which one is which. At some point, we can use the Eero app to shut them off one by one and then try to figure out which one stopped working so we can rename them. We may be in the old folks' home by the time we get done with this project. When I added our Macs to the new network, I discovered another thing to like about Eero. The Macs have two network cards, one for Wi-Fi and one for wired Ethernet. That would be true of PCs as well. But in the Eero app, it shows each of the devices twice and has a different graphic for each kind of connection, which I thought was really cool. So you can easily see the MAC address and the IP address for your Wi-Fi card and your Ethernet card separately. You could tap on a device to drill down and learn more about the device. Like I said, like MAC address, IP, and which Eero device it is connected to. That's going to be fun to watch as I've heard the Eeros learn over time. You can even see the network traffic of each device individually. I could see that being super handy for people. Let's say you're doing a Skype call and your connection gets choppy. You could poke around and figure out who in your house might be running, say, a giant backup or playing a demanding online game. I also like that you can run speed tests of your entire network. I'm going to be poking that button a lot just for the fun of it. Now, setting up static IP address is super easy on the, IP, on the Eero app as well. I won't go through the instructions, but the Eero side was really slick. Now, my Drobos have to have static IPs, and I did have to mess around a lot to move them over. But once I realized what I had to do, it was a logical set of steps. I had to change them to DHCP first within the Drobo dashboard app, because that's where you tell Drobo uh, the Drobos what their IP addresses are. You do it in the Drobo dashboard app. So I changed them from uh, static IPs to give them dynamically assigned IPs with DHCP. Then I had to reboot them because that's what you have to do all the time with Drobos. After I rebooted them and they had new DHP, DHCP addresses from the Netgear, then I was able to move their wired connections over to the new router. Then I could assign new static IPs within uh, the Eero app and within the Drobo dashboard app. And I'm pretty sure I had to reboot them again. It wasn't super hard, but it was time consuming. And it also illustrated how if I'd simply swapped in the new router, I never would have been able to get to the Drobos because their IPs would have been incompatible with the new router. Now, you may remember from grueling tales of yore that I back up one Drobo to the other using Chronosync on a Mac Mini. It wasn't too hard to change my scripts to point to the new IPs, but it's remembering to do all these little tiny tricky things that is so challenging. One other thing of note is that while the Netgear has four LAN ports on it, the Eros only have one. Well, technically, I guess in a way they sort of have two, but one of them is, becomes a WAN port in this case, and one is the LAN port. You pretty much need a switch of some, some uh, type if you're going to need to hardwire anything. Luckily, a while back, Pat gave me a 16-port gigabit switch. 
While it was a luxury in the past, now it was a necessity. Now, lucky for you, I am not going to walk you through how each and every vendor has a different process to be followed to move their devices from one network to another. But I do want to talk a little bit about the easiest and most annoying devices we've moved. Let's talk about a few of the devices that weren't hard since that's the really short list. A few devices were super easy to, con to convert. I had no idea how you move the HomePod. Since it really has no interface, and I'm pretty sure Siri doesn't understand networking, right? I read online that all I would need to do was move the device that was acting as the hub and the HomePod was fo would follow along. But I've never been entirely sure about what the hub is in my house. I think it's the downstairs Apple TV, but I also think at some point it might have been one of my iPads. Like I said, I've never been sure about that. But I also read that in the Home app, you can just press and hold on the icon for the HomePod and one of the options that pops up says, move to new network. I tapped that, selected the Eero's name, and boom, it was done. No password required at all. Probably sensed it from the iPhone, I imagine, but I didn't have to worry my pretty little head about it. It was glorious. The other thing that was surprising to me was uh, about hubs. Back when IoT was just getting started, every company made its own hub, and you had to plug it directly into your router, which is why I needed the switch that Pat gave me. We all complained about it. But I have to say, now I wish every company had hubs. I unplugged the Hue Hub from my Netgear, and I plugged it into the switch on the Eero. I pressed the button on the top of the Hue Hub, and boom, all my Hue lights were on my new network. It simply could not have been easier. Now, I should mention, Ring has a hub, but it's only used for their alarm system. It would have been nice if it used that for all of the cameras and chimes. You know what else was oddly easy? Our Kindles. Now, okay, it's kind of weird that my books are on my network diagram. And I know the touchscreen on the Kindle is annoying, but it was obvious what to do and it did not fail. It's, it was just like, you know, type it in and you're done. Now let's talk about some of the hardest devices to move. You know you live in a connected home when you realize that your car is on your network. I figured Tesla would have to make my life easy, but it was one of the hardest and only because they have a dumb user interface. At the surface level, it's just like connecting a Mac. You tap on the Wi-Fi symbol and it shows a list of available networks. You choose the one you want and a keyboard pops up for you to type in the Wi-Fi password. Now, I know my long, complex password by heart, so I typed it in. The keyboard has an enter key on it, so when I was done typing, I hit the enter key when I was finished. At that point, it went off and it thought about it for a bit, and then it came back and said, nope, it didn't work. I tried five times. Finally, I got Steve in the car with me so he could watch the little disappearing letters as I typed in the password. Because, you know, it does that thing where it shows it to you for a split second, then it turns into a dot. I wanted him to make sure I was typing it correctly. I typed it incorrectly, and again, it said I was wrong. On the seventh try, Steve noticed that in addition to the enter button on the keyboard, the window where my password was showing up had a button that said confirm. He suggested I tap on that instead of hitting enter. And guess what? It worked. He was pretty smug about it, but I say that's super lame UI. If it's going to accept the enter key, it should do the same function as the confirm button. That's bananas. Why is that different? It's not happy. We have Wi-Fi enabled printers in our house. Entering my 24-digit password with special characters and upper and lowercase letters and numbers was really fun on a non-touchscreen HP printer. 
every character had to be selected by using the arrow keys to go through the alphabet in a grid. And remember, anytime I change to a special character, it's like three separate clicks to get it to give me a different grid of characters. And then I had it had to hit another button to select each one. It was agony, but I got it right on the second try. So hooray for me. Then I went off to do Steve's and I was so happy when I found out his isn't Wi-Fi enabled. That was a good day. My LifeX light strip was another nightmare. I was able to get it on the network pretty easily, but it wanted to be in HomeKit too. The app has a special button just to add it to HomeKit. Well, I wanted it on HomeKit, but even though it spoon-fed me the instructions, every time I scanned the HomeKit code from the original packaging that I dug out of the closet, it kept telling me that the code was wrong. It's only six digits. You can't get that wrong. It's scanning it. After about 12 tries, I gave up. Later, I happened to look in HomeKit for something else. <laughs> there was my LifeX life strip sitting there. All I can figure is it got in there on one of the early tries when I was scanning the code, and it kept telling me it didn't work because it already had the code in there. I will never know. One of the worst devices, though, was the Google Nest Protect smoke and CO alarms, carbon monoxide alarms. The last time we had a mess with it, it was a nightmare, so we procrastinated on attacking these till the very end. I decided to try it on my own without Steve. I spent, and I watched the clock this time, 37 minutes trying. And in that length of time, I successfully got one of them on the network, but not both. To get the second one on, the first one talks to the second one, and evidently they were having a spat because it never, ever worked. Then Steve came home and he tried. About a half hour later, he gave up and he called Google. I should mention that we had to call them on the phone the last time we did this as well. I listened from the other room to Steve's conversation, and in another 23 minutes, Google got exactly one device online. They then escalated Steve to upper-tier support, or at least tried to, leaving Steve on hold for about another 20 minutes. Finally, they came back and they said, we're going to have to call you back tomorrow. Seriously, they can't even do it. They did make some noise about sending us new ones, and we thought, man, that'd be really swell if it works out that way. Because evidently, they don't want you using these past the expected lifetime, and the expected lifetime ends next year. After this, I was talking to Pat about how annoying the nests are, and she said, oh, I just helped someone with them, like eight of them in their house, and it was a breeze. I just did the first one, and then I'd take that one to the next one, the next one, the next one. It was fabulous. It was a breeze. Yeah, she's the one who claims she can wirelessly scan at her house, too. Anyway, the folks at Google gave up and told Steve they'd call him back, like I said, at the next day at 11. And of course, they did not call back. However, when Steve was waiting for them to call back, it occurred to him what was wrong. It wasn't Nest's fault at all. There may be a few astute folks who have been hollering into their devices that they know what's wrong. I actually gave you both clues in this discussion, and I am kicking myself that I didn't figure it out, and Steve did. I explained the two things to you earlier. I told you that the Nest Protect connects to the network by first connecting one, and then the second one connects to the first one. But I also told you the guest network is purposely designed so that devices can't talk to each other. Obviously, the Nest was never going to work if it was on the guest network. Now, my first instinct was to be mad at Google for making me allow them to out of a, a device on my trusted network when I didn't want to. But then I remembered there's a good reason for the Nest Protects to talk to each other. If the downstairs Nest Protect notices smoke or carbon monoxide, the upstairs Nest Protect will also sound the alarm. 
Even it, it even tells you in voice that it detected smoke downstairs. So you'll hear it say, smoke detected downstairs. Well, that means I have to forgive Google for this one, and I have to give Steve full credit for figuring it out. There's a few more devices left on our list, but we're coming into the home stretch. The scariest one is Steve's weather station. It's outdoors, and it connects to a screen that's inside our house. But then he has added an external Wi-Fi card to it called Medio Bridge. The Medio Bridge, in turn, has a web interface, and that's how you talk to it, and in there is how you change networks. Think about it for a minute. You're on network A, you connect into the Medio Bridge, and you've got this web interface. You type in the info for network B. As soon as you save, if you messed it up, you're like dead in the water. The Medio Bridge won't be on either network, so you can't talk to it. So yeah, we're procrastinating on that one. I was also worried about the Wemo switches, and um, the last time I messed with the network, the older Wemos had problems. Falcom was awesome when we called them, but they couldn't get it to work either. After a ton of work, I realized that the Wemo required a dedicated 2.4 gigahertz band with its own SSID, which I actually mentioned earlier. In fact, that's why we had our network separated all this time was just for the Wemo switches. But mesh routers don't let you separate the bands, and I wasn't sure what was going to happen, so I started with one of them. I reset it, which erased all of the switches in my app. I don't have access to any of them now. And now I'm looking at it right now. It's it's blinking amber and white right now. And I spent over an hour trying to get it added to my network. And it's one of the newer ones. It's not one of the older ones. And it says it's going to be asking me for the uh, HomeKit uh, code. But I don't have a HomeKit code that came with it. And it's not supposed to be asking me for a HomeKit code. And in fact, it never does ask me for the HomeKit code. It's just sitting there blinking amber and red, uh, amber and white. So... I don't know what we're going to do about that. After we get those done, we only have left the sprinkler system from Racho, the garage door from MyQ, and the iDevices switches. So with the exception of the Wemos, I can see the end in sight. Even though we're not finished with the great network migration of 2020, I think we're going to prefer the new network. So far, the connectivity seems good, but I've got to run some real tests to be sure. With my old network, I had five SSIDs broadcasting between the 5 and 2.4 gigahertz networks for both the guest and trusted networks, plus the extender had its own SSID for the 2.4 gigahertz network. Now we're down to two with this trusted network and the icky network. After going through more than a week with every single device having its own nightmare of a setup, I'm looking forward to some real standards some days on this stuff. Hi, this is Jill again talked previously about how I used to have such a horrible time sleeping. It was downright insomnia. I used some technologies to ease some of the problems I had sleeping. If you remember, I'm from the North Woods at the very top of America. I run hot everywhere. I'm the one person who at the office wishes it was 10 degrees colder. If it gets to 84 degrees, I lament. When I sleep, I get very, very warm. All year long, I sleep with a very thin blanket. In the summertime, I used to pump air conditioning throughout the house with an army of fans just so I could try to get to sleep. It wasted a lot of energy, money, and it didn't really work all that well. This is where BedJet comes in. Not one thing in my sleep saga did more for me than this device. For a non-technical description, it's kind of like a fan with a gooseneck arm that goes between the blankets and the sheets. It was invented by an ex-NASA spacesuit engineer, a medical device designer, a team of engineers, 
and a sleep doctor. I think that they started selling these to hospitals for patients who have trouble controlling their own temperature. Then it became a consumer device. From their website, it says, this is no simple bedroom fan or electric blanket. It's a Bluetooth-enabled microprocessor control, air-driven climate control machine born just for your bed. I have to admit, in the summertime, it works great. I think what it does is it takes that cooler air and it replaces some of that warmer, moister air from between your blankets in the summer, and it feels very cool. I was very skeptical about it because I like air-conditioned air, and if this doesn't have an air conditioner built into it, it probably is not going to work. But actually, it works very well, just pulling that air out and replacing it with cooler air. I can't even tell that I barely air condition my house overnight anymore. In the wintertime, it can heat. There's even an app, and the app will let you to set these sleep scenarios up so that you can have it change throughout night. Perhaps you really like crawling into a toasty warm bed, but then you start getting a little too warm, and by morning time, you really want it to warm up again. You can set that kind of a scenario up. There are some presets involved that are based on biological research of temperature overnight. And so you can use those as starting points and adapt them so they fit your sleep patterns. That's what I did. I ended up spending a few months setting up three different sleep scenarios. One for where it's very warm outside, one for where it's very cold outside, and one for those transition seasons where it starts off pretty warm, but it gets cooler throughout the night. Those three scenarios pretty much worked for me, and it took a little bit of nudging here and there to get them just right. They work great now. I have Bedjet 2, and it has a remote, but the remote is pretty simple. It only allows you to change from hot to cold and the fan speeds. Bedjet 3 came out earlier this year, and it has a full-color remote that lets you change everything. The heat, the cooling, the presets that you have built into your system already, everything can be changed by this remote, which is nice because then you're not opening up your iPad or your iPhone, trying to reset some of the sleep scenarios that you started with. In 2020, they're going to work with some of your home devices, such as the Alexas and the HomePods, so that you can control these things with voice activation. I just imagine myself yelling, hotter, colder. I feel that BedJet lets me sleep most nights without getting hot or cold. I no longer have to overheat or overcool my house and I've saved hundreds of dollars in electricity. It's quieter than a fan. It's safer than an electric blanket or electric mattress pad. It also changes instantly from hot to cold. You can use their specially made baffle sheets or just your own sheets. But the one thing you must do is sleep with a lightweight blanket. You don't need that big heavy blanket in winter anyway. They also sell devices for people who share a bed and each want different settings. I can tell you my cats love BedJet as well. They try to sleep as close to that thing as possible. So the second technology that I used in order to help myself sleep better is Hue lights, but it really could be any smart lights. As I mentioned before, I have a circadian clock problem. If I had my way, I would probably sleep on Hawaii time, but I work and I can't do that. I have to actually follow a real schedule. Now, when I bought the Hue lights, I really just got them because I love the smart home functionality, colors are very pretty, and they save energy. I've really liked my Hue lights. But after some reading, 
I learned that the human body really likes to have that yellow-blue light in the morning to wake us up. And at nighttime, it wants to have that red-hue light that gets darker and more dim to tell the brain that it's time to produce melatonin. I thought, maybe Hugh can help me here. I started using If This Then That to set scenarios to create a more natural light cycle. If you've never used If This or That, then you're in for a real treat. You can create triggers and events and reactions from thousands of services to thousands of other services. It's really quite interesting. You can find out more about that at ifttt.com. So what I did is I set up these scenarios starting at 8.30 p.m. They run every 30 minutes and the lights get more dim and a little bit more red. By the time we're at 10.30, it's very dark and very red. My neighbors must be absolutely curious about what's going on in my house. The other part of it is I have the hue light strips, and those go through the common walkway that I take at night. That way I don't have to turn on any bright lights and interrupt the sleep pattern for me. In the morning time, you can use an out-of-the-box functionality from Hue to slowly bring the lights up over the course of 20 minutes or a half hour so that it wakes you up naturally. I mentioned before that Sleep Cycle also has the same functionality, but in this case, it tries to match it when you're more naturally awake, and so I use that as well. But it's good natural ways of trying to wake yourself up and make yourself tired. I love the smart lights for the normal purposes. I love the bright, fun colors. I use the sensors in the house to turn on and turn off lights. This brings lights on and off in my house, even when I travel. I have all sorts of motion sensors to work on my cat's motion. Fun, functional, and sleep-inducing. Smart lights can really do it all. So the last technology I'd like to talk about is Headspace Sleepcast. My brain races a lot, and it's not even bad things. It's, what will I do tomorrow? What will I go grocery shopping for? What should I get done when I'm on Christmas vacation? All sorts of thoughts that could be had later. And so what I used to do is I started listening to Audible books at night. Then Headspace sent me an email saying they just introduced something called Sleepcast. They are about 50 minutes long, and they always start out with some sort of relaxation or breathing exercise. And then the story starts. Some of them are a bit silly. Actually, probably all of them are a bit silly. But honestly, I can't remember any of them. I'm out cold in minutes. And you might think it might be those initial breathing or relaxation exercises, but it works when I don't even do them. I'm asleep in minutes. And I'm not really sure how it happens. The story starts off just like you expect, a very calm reader with a kind of a silly story like I mentioned about a cabin or a laundromat. One of them was a tree house that you built at the top of a redwood tree. And I'd be thinking, who in their right mind would build a tree house at the top and then I'd be out cold? I wouldn't even remember the rest of the story. I'm not even sure what happens in the story. Sometimes I think I might actually listen to these during the daytime so I can figure out what actually goes on with these tree houses and laundromats. But then I'm a little bit scared to make the magic go away. It really is amazing. I have used the same stories over and over again. They will randomize for you if you ask it to. I have used this when I wake up in the middle of the night and I can't get back to sleep. It works at home. It works at the hotel. It's really pretty amazing. I've never had problems going back to sleep after using these sleep casts. Calm 
which is a competitor to Headspace, also has their own type of sleep meditation. I've never used it before. I imagine it's somewhat similar, but it'd be interesting to find out. I've even tried this podcast that was supposed to be some boring, weird story that puts you to sleep, but that never really worked for me either. There's something really interesting here that I'm sure someone with some science and some some research knows what they were doing and why they picked the stories that they did. But it really works for me, and I'm really excited that something puts me to sleep when I'm having trouble. So those are the three technologies I use to help me sleep. Well, it sounds like I'm cutting Jill off, but she sort of ended on an up note there. But I think it's really interesting the devices that she uses to help her sleep. I'm kind of intrigued by that sleep cast idea. I got to try it. I I don't have much trouble sleeping, which is one of the reasons I'm so annoyingly unsympathetic uh, to people who do. But there are times where I wake up in the middle of the night and my brain's just going bananas and I can't uh, can't get to back to sleep. So it'd be fun to give that a try. But I really appreciate Jill coming along the show to uh, to tell us the story. If you've been making New Year's resolutions, maybe one of them should be to support your friendly local, local on the internet, podcaster. You could set aside a little bit of money to put in a Patreon to help keep the PodFeed podcast running like a Swiss clock. Now, I don't do this for profit, but it is quite nice to have the bills not actually cost me money. If you get value out of the podcast and can afford to help out, I'd be most happy if you'd go to podfeed.com slash Patreon and sign up. Many great thanks to the people who have already pledged their support. Okay, Frank, wake up. The show's coming back on now. Last week, I told you about the 36 distinct things that went wrong with me in tech on a single day. (laughs) The only good news is I didn't run that test when I was working on moving my IoT devices to a new network. Anyway, this next bit from Kaylee rings very true to me after how many finicky things are going on in tech these days. I'm thinking she's on to something. Yeah, Katie the yo, and I'm definitely a geek. And I'm here with my review of my brand new iPad. Yes, of course, I'm talking about the 9.7 inch fourth generation iPad. But Kaylee, the collective NoSilicast community said, don't you mean the brand new 10.2 inch seventh generation iPad, which was on sale over Black Friday for 249 US dollars? No, I mean the 9.7 inch First model with a lightning connector, fourth generation Retina iPad, released all the way back on September 12th, 2012. Now, before you go searching to check if you're listening to the correct episode or not, let me assure you that it is in fact 2019, unless Allison decided to push this to 2020, and I'm currently not only living with this iPad as my primary device, I'm enjoying it. But how does an early adopter, tech lover, and all-around Apple fangirl end up downgrading all the way back to 2012-era hardware? Well, let's start at the beginning of how we ended up here. Until recently, I was running on both a 2018 11-inch iPad Pro and a 2018 12.9-inch iPad Pro. These two are the latest and greatest iPads. Top of the line, cream of the crop, the Rocky of iPads, if you will. Yo, Adrian! <clears throat> anyway, then, much like the script for Rocky V, disaster struck. A crack formed in the outer bezel of my 12.9-inch iPad Pro. Now, it was a small crack, but I decided to go ahead and sell both of my iPad Pro models. This was, in part, to maximize the amount I could get for a slightly damaged iPad Pro, and partly because, at the time, there were rumors of an impending iPad Pro refresh. 
These were unfounded, of course, and the iPad Pro remains on target, in my opinion at least, for a refresh at around the usual 18-month mark in the cycle, which should put it around March 2020 or so. Perhaps announced alongside the iPhone SE successor, which I suspect will be called iPhone 9. So, with the refresh at least a half a year away, what's a geek girl to do when she uses her iPad daily for both work and play? Well, I decided to shop around and try and find a reasonable deal on an older, used iPad Pro to get me through the next six months or so. I always did love the 10.5-inch iPad Pro. It has ProMotion, a pretty nice-sized screen with amazing colors, great speakers, and nice performance, and it has Touch ID. While I do love and prefer Face ID on my iPhone, nothing beats Touch ID on iPad. Oh, and I still had my old 10.5-inch iPad Pro case lying around, so I snatched up a great deal on a fully working, used 64GB one with a dent and scratch or two. Things were going great, and that should be the end of our story. Meditashi, meditashi. But alas, sometimes it just isn't that simple. An iPad... At its core, when you strip away all the fancy multitasking features and drawing utensils, is a magical piece of glass that can become whatever you want it to be. What a powerful concept when you stop and think about it. Whatever you want it to be. And what I want it to be is stable, reliable, dependable. I need it to be. I need 98% or more uptime and perfection with as few crashes and reboots as possible. But what I have right now with iOS 13 and iPadOS 13 is the exact opposite. I have an operating system which leaves me worried as I try and teach primary schoolers. Worried that I will lose time and momentum having to fiddle with apps and deal with reboots, lockups, and crashes, all while 35 to 40 students stare at me like I'm a zoo animal. I had an incident last week where I accidentally left my portable WiMAX router at home and was left attempting to tether using my iPhone 11, which is not running beta software. I've done this many times in the past without incident, so I expected things to be fine. Instead, my iPhone had a kernel panic. And it wasn't just a respring where Springboard, the iOS home screen app, crashes and it takes a few seconds to restart some processes. No, this was a full-on hard reboot, which left me scrambling to fill time for three and a half minutes in the middle of class as I could not continue the lesson without internet access. The last straw for me came a few weeks ago when I was using one of my go-to educational apps, Bitsboard Pro. Bitsboard Pro isn't cheap, for an iPad app at least, at $24.99 USD, but it has paid for itself tenfold. More than tenfold. It has tons of games you can use to teach kids everything from colors and numbers to vocabulary and grammar. It even has cloud functionality, allowing teachers to publicly share sets of their own flashcards. And flashcards are super easy to create, as you can search Google Images straight from within the app. Bitsport even has thousands of pre-recorded voice clips for various vocabulary words. Needless to say, it's one of my go-to apps during primary school English classes. It's also updated regularly and quite stable. One of my favorite Bitsport Pro activities to do in class is to break the class into teams and play a game of memory cards, or concentration for those who remember Jack Nars on NBC. Not a match, the board goes back. Memory is a great game for repetition of new words and for getting them to work together and, well, concentrate. Oh, that's where the name comes. Anyway, after all, I mirror the iPad screen on the TV so all the teams can work together making matches of vocabulary cards. But a few weeks ago, 
Suddenly, the game crashed. And the app doesn't save the game state. So the 12 minutes or so we'd put into the activity was lost, as was the momentum and the mood of the class. I've never, ever, ever had a crash mid-game before. And while it could be a bug on the developer's side, I'm inclined to suspect that it's yet another buggy iPadOS 13 issue. And since the downgrade window to iOS 12 is closed, I decided to pull out my third generation iPad and see if I could use it just during class, of course. I was planning to continue on using my 10.5 inch Pro for personal tasks. But then something truly bizarre happened. The more I used it, the more I liked it. I liked the simplicity of the interface. I liked the curved rear edges and loved the giant bezels on all four sides of the screen, both of which make it easier for me to hold securely. More than anything, though, I like that it just feels stable, solid, reliable. Sure, it's not perfect, and there's frustrating parts to using older devices, of course, but compared to iPadOS 13, well, I quickly found myself wondering if I could make this my primary iPad. In order to do that, however, I needed to figure out if the apps I use every day would run on iOS 9 or iOS 10. I suspected I might be able to do it. After all, the first iPad I ever used for teaching in the classroom was a third-generation iPad. But then again, a lot can change in seven years. I started by taking stock of my most commonly used apps on iPad, and obviously began with the educational apps I use at work, like Dosiri, which is a whiteboard app, and BitsWord Pro. All of the core apps I use are supported back as far as iOS 8 or 9, and even if the current versions are not, you can often download the last compatible version for your device by attempting to download it from the Purchased tab of the App Store. One side benefit is that on my Mac Mini 2011 server running High Sierra, I have an archive of older IPA files or iPhone application files. Some of these apps are no longer in the App Store. Some are older versions of current apps I kept around for legacy reasons. And hey, many of my favorite teaching apps are legacy apps, which were never updated for 64-bit. So going back to older hardware would actually give life back to these apps again. Other apps I often use on iPad for work or play include audio apps like Overcast and Audible, as well as my DJing app of choice, DJ Player Pro, which is optimized for older hardware. Video apps like InPlayer, Infuse Pro, and Plex. Reading apps like Kindle, Comic Glass, and D Magazine, an app I use for reading Japanese magazines. Go-to apps like Safari and YouTube, as well as notes, pages, and numbers. And of course, games. Surprisingly, many current games have support as far back as iOS 9 or 10. And just like my educational apps, there are so, so many 32-bit games which were never updated for iOS 11 or above. I've been digging into my old Sega iOS game archive, and I forgot how fun mobile games without annoying ads and in-app purchases used to be. Choo Choo Rocket, Super Monkey Ball, Sonic the Hedgehog, I bought them all. Okay, so the software situation seemed to be in order. All of my mission-critical apps were fine, and I found a few new favorites, too. But what about the hardware? When I started this journey, I was using my third-generation iPad, which I found at a junk shop for about 60 hunyakers a while back. While it works perfectly and has a retina screen, which still looks fantastic, there were two big problems for me with this iPad, other than the fact that it has white bezels. First, due to the underpowered nature of the A5X chip combined with the Retina screen, the third generation only supports up through iOS 9, and it's somewhat laggy too. Second, 
And perhaps more importantly, this was the final iPad model to use the 30-pin connector instead of Lightning. I don't mind using the 30-pin connector, but realistically, it charges much, much slower than newer iPads. So I quickly found myself frustrated with it. When thinking about which model I would like to use going forward, it occurred to me that if I wanted 32-bit application support, there was really only one other choice, the fourth generation iPad. As luck would have it, I happened to stumble upon one at a used bookstore during a recent trip to Tokyo. Amazingly, it was priced at the same 60 Hunyakers that I had paid for my third generation iPad. They also had an iPad 2 for 20 Hunyakers, but I need a retina display. Still, it, it was a fantastic bargain, especially considering that, unlike the third generation, the fourth generation still tends to go for 100 to 200 Hunyakers, depending on storage capacity. Fun trivia fact, the third generation iPad remains the iOS device with the shortest lifespan, at only 221 days of official availability between March and September of 2012. Bank that fact for the next time you play Apple Jeopardy with me. Seriously, I'm probably going to ask you that. Apple moved so quickly to launch the fourth-generation iPad for two main reasons. To replace the somewhat underpowered A5X chip with a faster A6X chip, as well as to replace the aging 30-pin connector port with the brand new Lightning port. Oh, and possibly to confuse everyone, after Phil Schiller had attempted to brand the third-generation as the new iPad, instead of the expected name iPad 3. But given the fourth generation iPad is more of a course correction of sorts, I guess that would make this one the new iPad final in all caps or, or something. Anyway, the move to lightning means that the fourth generation iPad really hits the sweet spot. After having used an iPad Pro with a USB-C port for a while now, I have to say that I find myself missing USB-C a lot less than I thought I would. I can use one lightning cable to charge both my iPhone and my iPad, plus my AirPods too. And being able to share USB and HDMI adapters, as well as cables and headphones, without needing additional dongles or carrying around multiple sets of dongles, which look quite similar and are easily mistaken for one another, is also quite nice. Seriously, when you have multiple devices without a headphone jack, the 3.5mm to Lightning and 3.5mm to USB-C dongles drive you insane. Speaking of headphones, I also realized that I love having a headphone jack on my iPad again, after not having one on the current generation iPad Pro models. I sometimes plug in wired headphones to my iPhone, but usually when I'm listening to something on it, I'm moving around, so AirPods work best. But iPad is different. I found myself really enjoying plugging in a nice, solid pair of wired headphones to listen to or watch something on my iPad while I'm stationary at my desk or on my bed. It saves those non-replaceable AirPods batteries, and the audio sounds better too, not to mention the fact that I occasionally DJ, so being able to charge and output audio without needing complicated adapters is a huge plus. One other note on the audio of this iPad, it sounds great. I mean, really great, all things considered. Obviously, the iPad Pro models sound better, as they have four speakers, but when comparing the sound to an original iPad Air, I found the sound on the Air to be very tinny, somewhat hollow, and much, much quieter. The fourth-generation iPad, on the other hand, is very clear, and it can get quite loud if need be. Perhaps the sound on the Air was a consequence of prioritizing thinness over function. The display in the 4th generation iPad is the same 9.7 inch retina display used in both the 3rd generation iPad as well as the original iPad Air. It's similar to the 5th, 
6th, and 7th generation base model iPad screens in that there is a visible gap between the glass and the screen, which makes the screen easier to repair, but not as nice looking as more recent iPads such as the iPad Air 2, Air 3, and iPad Pro models, where the laminated displays give the image that painted-on look. But even in 2019 or 2020, the fourth generation screen stands up as a very nice retina display with good colors and viewing angles. And because it lacks Apple Pencil support, the display has an oleophobic coating that actually works. Seriously, compared to recent iPad generations, it's so, so much easier to clean fingerprints off this iPad. I would gladly sacrifice Apple Pencil support or accuracy for an easier to clean display. Overall, the hardware is a nice package, but what about performance on the 4th generation iPad? Is it really possible to be productive on a device which was released so many generations ago? Well, one thing to keep in mind is that while the hardware is 7 years old, the software is iOS 10.3.3 or 10.3.4 if you have the cellular model iOS 11 dropped support for the 4th generation iPad in 2017, which means that updates for this iPad have only been discontinued for around two years now. Consequently, as I mentioned earlier, many of the apps you might commonly use in day-to-day life are still supported, or at the very least, have older versions which still provide functionality and usefulness today. In my personal experience, I've yet to find an app or feature unsupported on iOS 10, which made me want to run out and use newer iPads or iOS versions, with the sole exception of H.265 HEVC video, which struggles on the fourth generation iPad, but is supported fairly well on iPad Air models running iOS 12. The jump from iOS 9 to iOS 10 is huge and gets you many features including home app support and AirPods integration, though manual pairing using the button on the case is required for the fourth generation. The fourth generation also supports AirDrop, and the third generation does not. Control Center is wonky, though. iOS 10 had this weird swipe from below to get multiple cards with controls, audio, video playback, and home toggles on three separate pages. It's it's somewhat annoying, but usable. There's also the loss of advanced multitasking features, such as the application dock, slide over, and split view. However, I found that I don't mind so much. And if I do find myself needing to hardcore multitask, I'll just use multiple devices instead. I realize that this isn't an option for most people, and all things considered, as time goes on, there will always be more and more apps which drop support, as well as newer apps and newer features which simply require newer software or hardware. Speaking of which, let's get to the aspect which Bart and Allison have been shouting to themselves about since this segment began. Security. I'm going to say this plainly because there's no two ways around it. These iPads are insecure, or at the very least, less secure than newer devices. For starters, because the iPad is stuck on iOS 10, you're missing important security patches, and certain websites may not load properly in Safari. And because all iOS web browsers in the App Store are required to use the built-in WebKit engine for rendering, you're unable to install an alternative browser which is still being updated with newer features and security patches. You also should assume that any personal information put on these devices could be extracted by someone with physical access to your device, especially now that all iOS devices running A10 chips or lower have a permanent jailbreak. Newer, more advanced hardware and chipsets will almost always provide you with greater security. 
the lack of Touch ID, a secure enclave, and more, all features of more recent generations of iPad, means that even with a strong passcode or password, there may be ways to brute force or bypass your device's security. Not that using a strong passcode or password isn't a good idea, as it will prevent casual snooping and provide reasonable security, but I felt it was important to remind you of the risk imposed by someone who, as Winston Zeddemore might say, has the tools and the talent. Anyway, that said, as long as you passcode protect your devices, minimize the amount of personal data stored on your device, I don't have anything like one password installed, and protect it as best you can from unauthorized physical access, there's still a lot of value to get out of older iPads. One of the biggest complaints that you might experience on older iPads is lag. Surprisingly, even with reduced motion turned off in accessibility, my iPad feels snappy and responsive. To be fair though, the most lag I experienced comes occasionally when using the keyboard and apps with a lot going on. Admittedly, I started writing this review using pages, but quickly found the experience frustrating, as the software keyboard would sometimes fall behind, leading to multiple erroneous key presses, or only half of my sentence being typed. So I pulled out one of my old, trusty writing apps, IA Writer, which is still being updated for devices as far back as iOS 10. And it works beautifully. The app is as smooth as butter, and the software keyboard typing experience is everything I'd come to expect from iPad. I wrote this entire review using IA Writer on my iPad 4th generation, and it was a delight to use. I imagine that I would have had a more pleasant time in pages and numbers if I cleaned out my old documents from iCloud Drive, which I suspect is partly the cause of my lag. But then again, the iOS versions of iWork have always been frustrating for me, even on current generation hardware, so yeah. In the end, I paired my Magic Keyboard to my iPad, and it worked beautifully. I was never a huge fan of the smart keyboards from Apple anyway, mainly due to the bulk it adds as you carry it around day to day. In the past, if I needed a keyboard, I would bring my Magic Keyboard with me, even when using current generation hardware. Overall, I found lag and loading times to be completely usable and good for the most part. I haven't really felt like I'm being held back. Of course, much of this stems from my own personal workflows and the kinds of things I use my iPad for, so your experiences may vary, especially if you're an Italian named Federico. I've been working on this review for over a month now, debating whether or not to even record it. In the end, I decided to share my story with this caveat. I'm not advocating for you to do what I've done and run back to older devices or older software, but my intent with this piece was to both share my personal experiences and my personal frustrations with Apple's current software lineup, as well as to help show that there's still a lot of value to be had out of older iOS devices. After all, I wrote, recorded, and edited this entire segment on my fourth generation iPad. And it was fun, too. Plus, there's many other uses for older iPads. You can use one as a HomeKit hub or, or a picture frame, perhaps as an instrument when playing music or your controller while you're DJing. Maybe you could use it as an e-reader, a dedicated writing device, or even a way to distract kids in a long car trip. Speaking of which, I will say the one tough point is that my iPad only has 16 gigabytes of storage, which means I can't really offline very many songs, movies, TV shows, or podcasts. But having used the fourth generation for a few weeks now, I'm definitely on the lookout for a 64 gigabyte, 128 gigabyte model at a decent price. It would be nice to have because even if I go back to using a newer model someday, I can load up my fourth generation with all of my favorite older apps. It'll be like a time capsule of sorts. 
a magical piece of glass with the design of a particular era in the history of one of the best products, and my favorite product, which Apple has ever made. I just hope they can make them as good as they used to be once again. Until next time. Bye-bye. Oh my gosh. I love having her on the show. She is such a great addition. Everybody loves listening to her, so I hope she keeps coming back. But I'm afraid that's going to wind us up for this week. I am really looking forward to having an audience next week. It is. It, I know it sounds funny, but it's really lonely sitting here with a microphone and nobody, yeah, I don't know, making obnoxious comments in the background. Don't forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Remember, anything you're looking for on podfeet, it's podfeet.com slash whatever you're looking for. If you can't find what you want that way, let me know and I'll add it. It's super easy. I can make these little redirects. It's really cool. If you want to check out Patreon, podfeet.com slash Patreon. Want to donate through PayPal? Podfeet.com slash PayPal. Want to join our Slack community? Podfeet.com slash Slack. If you like Facebook, podfeet.com slash Facebook. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, please join me next week. Head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Lucilla Castaways, even Kevin. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.